It is great to be here today. I appreciate very much uh, the opportunity, the invitation to come and, and speak for you. I think I say this every time, but it's been a long time, longer than it probably should be, but as far as my mom's concerned anyway. Uh, but it's great to be here today, and we appreciate very much your presence and your participation in our worship assembly this morning. Thanks for the prayer on my behalf, and I also pray that what I have to say can be helpful to you in some way as you go about your Christian walk. This is sermon is actually the third part of a 12-part series uh, that I preached in Amarillo, but I don't want that to be confusing for you. I try to make each of these sermons very standalone, if you will. Um, the message I find in this passage of Scripture, particularly in the book of Ephesians, has become very quickly become one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament, uh, just because of the, the uh, encouragement that we see in the power of God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. As we talk about being raised from spiritual life, excuse me, raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, uh, and the reading that Grayson did this morning is the the context of of the passage we're going to talk about. Just a brief overview of what's going on in the book of Ephesians as Paul is writing this letter to them. You can kind of break up the book of Ephesians into two different sections. In the first three chapters, Paul talks about the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, and he begins by, by praising God for those spiritual blessings. In Ephesians 1, 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he talks about those blessings in great detail and in really an exhaustive way, talking about what God has done for us and his, his plan and his purpose throughout the ages, how we are to come together as the church and to grow together and to be together. And then he talks about, beginning in chapter 4, the resulting behavior of that, our response to what God has done for us. In Ephesians 4, 1, he says, I therefore, or because of what I've just talked to you about, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians deal with our response to God's love for us and how we respond in faithful obedience to what he's done for us. And so as we talk about what Paul is, is getting into in chapter 2, us being raised from spiritual death to life, it's important that we understand the context of that. And so we talked about this briefly in, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1 are, are widely considered by scholars to be some of the most beautiful prose that you find in the New Testament, uh, where Paul waxes very eloquent uh, and poetic about God and what he's done for us. And he talks about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how we're to praise God for the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about your general run-of-the-mill blessings that all humankind benefits from. We think about physical blessings, but the spiritual blessings that are only found in Jesus. And the reason for that is that we would be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory and that all things will be gathered into Christ. I think it's a very beautiful picture of what God has done for us. He then talks about he prays a prayer for them in the next few verses and wants them to be enlightened, to come to the understanding of what these blessings really mean for them. And in doing so, he really exalts Christ and really exalts God's plan and his purpose. He wants them to know about the hope that they have for an eternal life. He wants them to know the value they have, that God views them as, as something that's valuable, his glorious inheritance. And he talks about the immeasurable power that God has directed towards us. And that power is described in great detail as being his work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places and granted him authority and power and headship over the church. And he spends this entire first chapter building up Christ, building up God the Father and his work, the work of the Holy Spirit and sealing us uh, for, the, for the promise and really raising 
the bar, so to speak, exalting the work of God. And then he starts off in the next verses with a wet blanket. And he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And I apologize if this text is a little bit small for you. I'm used to a little bit bigger screen, so hopefully you can still read that. But Paul says you were dead, and this is meant to be contrasting. It's meant to be a, a stark contrast to what he's just been talking about. This great work and mighty work that God has done in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him to his right hand in the heavenly places, but you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins. Well, what's the cause of death? Here we have this great and mighty work, and all of a sudden, but you were dead. What is the cause of death? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened with Adam and Eve on the day that they ate the fruit? The day they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They died that day. Somebody says, wait a minute, they didn't die that day. I did a, a timeline study of the Old Testament a while back, and there's some very interesting things that you look at when you see how long people lived, and you see the fact that you know, Adam was still alive when Methuselah was born. Adam lived for 900 and some odd years, 913 I think is what it is. He didn't die the day he ate the fruit, neither did Eve. So what is this promise that God is saying here? He says, in the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. God wasn't speaking metaphorically here, and he wasn't talking about the curse of physical death. What he's talking about is spiritual death. And the day that they ate that fruit, they died that day, spiritually. He wasn't talking about just the physical death. More importantly, the spiritual death. And then we find that that happens the moment we commit sin. The very first time that you and I make the decision the, the, in full knowledge of God's word that I'm committing sin and I'm rebelling against God, that is the day that we die spiritually. And that's why Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. He talks about this course of the world that they were following. They were walking in the course of this world. You know, he says you once walked in these things. And when the Bible talks about the way that we walk, it's talking about our way of life, the way that we live, what we do on a daily basis, the things that we talk about, the things that we participate in, the people that we associate with. That's how we walk. It's not whether we walk with a limp or walk straight up or walk with, a, with the help of a cane or something. It's the way that we live our lives. He says, this is the way you lived your life. You walked in these trespasses and sins, and you followed the course of the world. What is the course of the world? We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. The course of this world is sin. And John says, if you love the world and the things in the world, then you're walking after the course of the world. He uses that word, the world, five different times there. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the things that are in the world are these, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. The things that draw us away and tempt us and cause us to commit sin. He says, if you're of the world, that's what you're taking part in. You're taking part in the desires. And he says that in verse 3 of our text, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see, when we live our lives just according to what comes to us, the things that make us feel good, the things we want to take part in, regardless of whether or not it contradicts God's law, that's when we're following the course of the world. You know, I remember back in grade school learning about history, early American history, and 
all the explorers, Lewis and Clark and people like that, that, that sort of discovered the North American continent and kind of blazed the trail, so to speak. You know, a trailblazer is not just an SUV. That comes from a, a very different thing, and that is people who went out into the wilderness and blazed the trail, who went out and, and led the way into the, into the unknown frontier, so to speak. But you know, the course of this world, it has a trailblazer. And that trailblazer is Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, this is why Jesus came. Because the trailblazer of the course of this world, that's Satan, he leads the way. He's been sinning from the beginning. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, he says here. Those are people who are following that course, following the trailblazer. Notice the important thing here. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. We talk all the time in our assemblies and from the pulpit in our prayers. We ask God to forgive us of our sin because we're imperfect. That's why we need Jesus. And many times we're going to stumble. Little moments in time we're going to stumble and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to sin. And then we're going to repent of that sin and we're going to ask God for forgiveness. That's not the kind of sin we're talking about here. He's talking about those who make a practice of sin, those who do it on a regular basis, those who are walking, living their lives in sin, who are following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air. That's not a trail you want to follow. That's not a course you want to take. You don't want to follow Satan. You want to follow Jesus Christ. But notice something very important in our text. This He's talking about a past. Notice he's talking in the past tense here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You once walked following the course of this world. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Very important. You used to be this way, Paul is saying. This is the way you used to walk. This is the way you used to live. And this phrase here, or this passage, just begs for the word but, doesn't it? But it's not that way anymore, and that's exactly what we get in the next passage. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there was a change that happened. Paul says, you used to be this way, but now you're not. Something changed. Now you're alive. You were dead. Now you're alive. You know, think about the importance of using the illustration of death. What does that mean for us? You know, when we lose somebody we love, that's a big change in our life, isn't it? When you lose someone you love, that relationship has been severed. We have all the memories. We have all, all the past. But going forward, that relationship is no longer there. We can't talk to them. We can't pick up the phone and ask how they're doing. We can't spend time with them. We can't laugh with them. We can't cry with them. That relationship is severed. Think about a dead body. What can a dead body do? A dead body can't do anything. All it can do is lay there. It can't help itself. It can't bring itself back to life. It can't do anything except lay in the grave. And Paul says, that's the way you were. You had no relationship with God. You had no relationship with the Father. You were helpless and hopeless and couldn't do anything about your own sin. But now that's changed. But God, because of his rich mercy and great love, he's made us alive, hasn't he? Paul goes into greater detail on this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did God do? There's that word but again. That crucial conjunction, what does it do? It contrasts what was and what is. Or what we might do versus what God has done. 
And here what he's saying is, you know what, some of you out there, you might die for a righteous person. You might choose to make that sacrifice in your life. You might even choose to die for a good person. But you know what God did? He didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for good people. He died for weak sinners. That's who he died for. He died for his enemies. We were the enemy of God while we were walking in our sins and our trespasses. And God sent Jesus Christ not to die for good people or even righteous people, but weak sinners. People who were dead. People who had no relationship with him. People who couldn't do anything about their own sin. It's impossible. It's impossible to overstate the wealth of mercy and love that God has shown towards us. This interjection of the statement, by grace you have been saved. You know, Paul's a big, he was a big guy for parenthetical statements. In fact, in chapter 3, you're going to find, if you continue on reading, that there's a, probably like a, a 12 or 13 verse parenthetical statement that happens in chapter 3. He likes to, a thought occurs to him and he goes into that to explain what he's talking about. And right in the middle of this, he throws this in, by grace you have been saved. In fact, verses, you could almost argue verses 4 and 5 are a parenthetical statement in and of itself. By grace you have been saved. God made you alive and by grace you have been saved. He's showing us we do not deserve the salvation that we have. We didn't earn it, and we're going to come back to that thought later. Back in Romans, that really lays home the point for us, doesn't it? We were his enemy, and he made us alive. He showed his love for us. How did he show his love for us? Because Christ died for us. That's how he did it. Don't forget the cost of forgiveness in your own life. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is he saying here? God's kindness, his patience, it's a real thing. He's not saying that that doesn't exist. What he's saying is, do you presume on that? Do you presume on his kindness? As he says later in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because we know that God's grace and mercy and love are so rich and so plentiful, do we just live our lives any way we want to because of that? No, he says that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to change you. It's meant to show you what God wants you to really be. He wants you to follow Christ now. He doesn't want you following the course of this world. He doesn't want you following Satan anymore. He's made you alive so that you can be something new, so that you can be something different. He's raised us to spiritual life. God, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. I don't know how many of you enjoy grammar, diagramming sentences, things like that. I, I hated it when I was a kid. I kind of like it now. It's kind of weird how we change. The, the main subject and verb of this passage here is this right here. God made us alive. God made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. And he did so by putting us in Christ. And that is the, really the important part of this. And as you read the book of Ephesians, you're going to notice a pattern with Paul's writing. And he's going to talk about being in Christ, in Jesus, with Christ, with him. Sorry, I keep pushing the wrong button. With him, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, over and over and over. The first chapter is replete with the same type of phrasing, in Jesus, in the Lord, in him, in the beloved. Why is that? Because this only happens in Christ. There's no other way we're raised to spiritual life other than through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It doesn't happen any other way. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now, there is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Same writer. Why does he stress it so much? Why does he always say in Christ? Because that's where it's at. 
You can't find it anywhere else. No other place will you find the forgiveness of your sins. Nowhere else will you find belonging to the family of God than being in Christ Jesus. There's no other way. I like this passage in Ephesians 1, and we didn't talk about it in great detail, so I want to drill in a little bit here when Paul talks about the the mighty work that God has done and what he did at the cross with Christ and how he raised him from the dead. It's very important, and there's some parallels that Paul is drawing here. He's coming back to these ideas that he established in the first chapter, and he's revisiting those when he talks about how God's work is completed in us as his children. So look at what he says here. This is that prayer I was talking about earlier where he's praying that they will understand what God has done for them. And he says he wants them to know certain things. And one of those things he wants them to know is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's talking about Christ's resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of God. He says, I want you to understand the power behind that and what that really means for you. And now he's circling back to that to tell us what it really does mean. And as great as it was, as what God did in Jesus Christ, it transfers to you and I as well. Because what happens is he raised Jesus from the dead. But what happens with us when we obey the gospel? He raised us up with him. And so he seated him at his right hand and he seats us with him. Where is that? In the heavenly places. That's the spiritual realm. In the heavenly places where Christ is at the right hand of God. And so he's going back and he's making these connections about when God did this for Christ, he does it to us as well. And we partake in the reward that Jesus had. We talk about this word immeasurable, the immeasurable power, the immeasurable greatness of his power. How do you define immeasurable? You know, we like things to be simple. We like things to be black and white. Those of you who are engineers, you may not like the the, the phrase immeasurable. It means you can't measure it. I think of when God, you know, made the promise to Abraham and he said, you go outside and you, you count the stars if you can. Can you count the stars? No, they're immeasurable. Paul says, that's what your family's going to be like. Or excuse me, God told Abraham, that's what your family's going to be like. And Paul is telling us that the power that God has directed toward us who believe is immeasurable. He's given us amazing power. And when he did the work that he did in Christ, And when we obey the gospel, he does the same work for you and I. He raises us with him. He seats us with him. He exalts us with him. And here's the great thing about what God has done. It's not just the fact that he forgave our sin. That in and of itself would be miraculous. God didn't just say, okay, I forgive you. No, he says, not only do I forgive you, I'm making you one of my own. I'm making you my child. Because of Jesus Christ, you can be my child. And you can have his inheritance and share in that. And that's the great thing about what God does for us. He doesn't just forgive our sins and let us start over. We're now part of his family. By grace, you have been saved. Another thing he's doing here is showing us the incredible power of God's work and the grace that is behind that. You know, I think in, in the church, at least from what I've experienced in, in the brotherhood that I've dealt with, is we tend to swing away from the idea of grace. That's a very unfortunate thing. And I don't think it's as much now as it used to be. But by grace, you have been saved. And, and we're going to touch on this in a little bit more detail as we, as we conclude our sermon here in, in a few minutes. But I want, I want us to really understand the importance of this, that we are saved by grace. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's Romans 5 and 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's when Paul goes into his next phrase. Well, so shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But I want you to know that God's grace is powerful. 
And we sit in this room today, members of God's household, forgiven of our sins, saved from his wrath for really one reason and one reason alone, and that is because of God's grace. And we should never, ever forget that or fail to teach it. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, he says in verse number 8. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is one of those passages of Scripture that a lot of people in the world have taken and perverted and changed the meaning of. And I think because of that, we want to swing, swing that pendulum. We want to swing the pendulum away from this idea of free grace, if you will. I think the uh, technical theological term for that is called antinomianism or antinomialism. I don't know for certain. But what it means basically is God's grace is there, and we just live our lives whatever way we want because God's grace is big enough to cover our sin. There's a song that we sing sometimes back home. Maybe you sing it here too. That God's grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And it is. But shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so I think we try to swing that pendulum, that, that idea of irresistible grace, if you will, that Calvinism teaches, that if God decides he wants to save you, he's going to save you no matter what you want to do, no matter the choice you make, God's just going to save you. Just live your life whatever way you want, and whatever happens, happens. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what this passage teaches. First of all, let's understand this, though, that our salvation is undeserved. That is what this passage teaches. Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What are we saved by? Paul told Titus, we're not saved because of works done by us in righteousness. We're saved because of his grace, his own mercy, justified by his grace. Now, this idea of grace and works and, and faith and works, it's, something, it's an argument that's been around for a long time. Paul dealt with it. Other writers of the New Testament dealt with it. But he very clearly tells us here in Titus, we are not saved by works of righteousness. What does that mean? That means in our dead, helpless state, when we were walking in sin and dead in our sins and trespasses, it doesn't matter how many works of righteousness that you think you can do, you can't be saved by that. Only through God's grace can you be saved. And so on one side, we have the idea of free grace that says just live your life however you want and God's grace will cover it. And then that pendulum can swing all the way to the other side where people say, we got to prove ourselves to God. we got to work our way to righteousness. Paul said that's what the, the Jews had a problem with. They, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. Neither one of those things work. As with many things, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And we're going to try to show that today. So, for by grace you have been saved. Let's talk about this idea of, of salvation for just a minute. You have been saved. What is he saying there? To keep safe, to rescue from danger or destruction. Now, from what I've studied, and again, I don't want to bore you with grammar, but it's important. It really is important. This word saved, it's in the, the present active tense. And what that means is it's, a, it's an action that happened in the past that continues on now into the present. Okay, you have been saved. You were saved, but that wasn't a one-and-done salvation. And that's another thing great about the salvation that we have in God. He doesn't just save us and then say, okay, try again, because we're human. Guess what's going to happen? We're going to mess up again. We can't do it perfectly just because God says you're saved. But our salvation happens at the point we obey the gospel, and that continues to save us going forward. And he talks about that 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the gospel. He says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you and which you received, in which you stand. You're standing right now in the gospel, he says. He says, and by which you are being saved. Not you were once saved by the gospel, but you were saved by it and you're still standing in it and you are being saved by the gospel right now. And so we have what I reluctantly call perpetual salvation, and it's not the same idea of once saved, always saved, or uh, uh, perseverance of the saints, as the Calvinists call it. But the idea of our salvation happens not just once, but it continues to happen as we continue to have faith in Christ and what he's done for us. And it's not just a one-and-done thing. You are being saved by it, but there's conditional statement here. The word if. Wait, God places conditions on his salvation? That's what Paul says. He says, you are being saved if you hold fast the word that I preached to you. What's the word he preached to you? It's the gospel. You hold fast to the truth of the gospel, and God continues to save you. It's not, I obey the gospel, and I'm saved, and therefore now I have to live my life in such a way. Yes, that's what happens. We do that in response to what God has done for us. But it's still the gospel that saves us. It's not my own works of righteousness that does it. Exactly what he's saying over here in Ephesians chapter 2. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's how our salvation works. <clears throat> I don't think there's any controversy, really, when people look at this passage and they say, we're saved by grace. I really don't know anybody who truly would deny that. You were saved by grace. The argument comes, I think, when we talk about faith. And what is faith? We're saved by grace through faith. It doesn't take you very long watching televangelists or if you do a search on YouTube for sermons about faith and grace you're going to find that most preachers are going to say, well, faith just means that we believe in God and that we believe in Jesus Christ. You mean I don't have to do anything to be saved? I just have to believe? That's it. That's what people will say. I submit to you this morning that is not what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians chapter 2. If this was the only passage of Scripture we had about faith and grace, you might be able to come away with that idea, maybe. But, you know, as Paul talked to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he says, I didn't shrink from telling you the whole counsel of God. We don't just have this one passage, do we? We have other passages in the scripture that talk about ideas of faith and grace and works. And if you go to James chapter 2, there's a passage here to me that is simply undeniable. And in no plainer language can we get a better grasp of what we're talking about here than by reading this. He says in verse number 18 of James 2, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You mean our faith can be seen? I thought faith was just believing, right? You know, the people that wanted to see Jesus and have their friend healed, they went and they broke open the roof and they let the man down on his, his cot or his bed. The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. Faith is more than simply just believing, isn't it? He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, oh, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What is he saying there? If you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, but you don't do anything about it, then that is useless. It doesn't do you any good. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And I don't know how it could be any plainer. And so the question we have here then, is, is there a disconnect here? You know, one of the basic principles of Bible interpretation is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. I believe that. I believe the Bible doesn't contradict itself. I believe the Bible harmonizes. But what do we have here? Over here, Paul is saying, 
that your salvation is not a result of works. And over here, James is saying you're justified by works. Which is it? I submit to you that both of these things are true because he's talking about two different things. On one side, he's talking about those works of righteousness. Not by those works of righteousness. We can't do anything. We can't be good enough. We can't, we can't deserve or earn salvation. But what is he talking about over here? He's talking about works of faith. He's talking about us responding in faith to what God has done and responding in faith to the commands of God. Obedient faith. This is a quote by Martin Luther. I'm going to read it here in just a minute. And I want to use this to, to show the principle of what I'm talking about here. Because people come away from Ephesians 2 and verse 8 and they say, see, all you have to do is believe. And then they come across passages like James and they struggle. Listen to what Martin Luther says. The epistle of James gives us much trouble. There it is right there. For the papists embrace it alone and leave out all, all the rest. Accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, then I shall make rubble also of it. I feel almost, I feel, almost feel like throwing Jimmy, that's James apparently, into the fire or into the stove as the priest in Kallenberg did. That's an obscure reference to some story about a priest that was, was trying to light his stove and didn't have any wood. And he had these little wooden figurines of the apostles and he threw them into the fire to light his stove. What a horrible thing to say about the Word of God. Martin Luther, who admittedly did probably some good things when it comes to uh, going against the Catholic Church and things like that, but he took it too far, and what he's saying here is appalling. We, the, the, the epistle of James gives us much trouble. Why did it give him trouble? Because it didn't jive with his theology. He had come to this conclusion in his mind that grace and faith alone saves me, and I don't have to work at all. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to respond to God's grace at all. But here's a, a, a passage of Scripture that very clearly teaches against it. And so therefore, I will make rubble also of it. Notice he doesn't say, I'll make rubble of their interpretations. I will make rubble of it. What's it? The epistle of James. And this is the problem that we have with this kind of theology. When people are faced with very clear definitions and instructions from the Word of God, they have to result to saying, well, I don't think that's really inspired, which is basically what Martin Luther has said in, in this quote and in other quotes that, that you can find that he made. Why is all this important? Because it shows us that the Bible harmonizes. And it shows us the importance of being saved through faith and what that means. Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12, I believe, is a parallel passage to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. What in the world have we been talking about for the past, hopefully not too long, 20, 30 minutes? We've been talking about raised with Christ, raised to spiritual life. Paul said, the same man who wrote this said, that happens when you are baptized into Christ. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What is the powerful working of God? What in the world have we been talking about for the past 30 minutes? The fact that God raised Christ and exalted Christ and seated him in his right hand. And he raised us and exalts us and seats us with him. When you have faith in that mighty work and you submit to him in the waters of baptism, guess what happens? You are raised with him. That's when it happens. And I hope that we can all understand the magnitude of the grace that has been extended towards us. We did not, we do not deserve the salvation that God has granted us. We were dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, yet God loved us anyway. He loved us anyway, and he gave his son. He raised us from spiritual death and not only gave us life, but made us his children. The question I want to ask you this morning, have you been saved through faith? 
Had you been raised with him through faith? Had you been created in Christ Jesus for good works? Don't tell me Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 says bad works are a bad thing. He says that's why you were raised. That's what you were created. Not what you were born for, what you were created for when you obeyed the gospel and were raised to a new life. That's what you were created for, that we should walk in them. Not walk in our sins and trespasses, but walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Have you made the decision to do that in your life? Have you repented of your sins? Have you been buried with him in baptism in order to be raised with him in newness of life? The invitation of Christ is open this morning if you want to do that. If you've not made the choice to be raised with Christ, please do that today. Don't wait any longer. If you need the prayers of this church for any reason, please come forward as we stand and sing.